Chapter Fourth of Mildred at Home by Martha Finley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gold, 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 bright and yellow, hard and cold. Hood. A beautiful spring day was drawing to a close as two persons, a young man and a maiden, seated themselves on a fallen tree on the western bank of the St. Joseph River. They had strolled a long distance from home, leaving the noise and bustle of the town far behind. They were a trifle weary with their walk, and it was pleasant to sit here and rest in the cool evening air, sweet with the scent of wildwood flowers, with the grass green about their feet, and no sound to break the stillness save the song of the cricket, the gentle murmur of the breeze in the treetops, and the soft ripple of the water flowing swiftly onward, so bright and clear that it reflected, as in a mirror, its own grassy wooden banks and the rich purple, gold, and amber of the sunset clouds, while the pebbly bottom, with fishes great and small, darting here and there, could be distinctly seen. For some time the two sat there silently, hand in hand, the girl's eyes gazing steadily down into the water, her companions fixed upon her face with an expression of ardent admiration, an intense, yearning affection. It was a noble countenance, at this moment thoughtful and grave, even to sadness. Ada, my love, he said at length, it is a hard thing I am asking of you. I am ashamed of my selfishness. No, no, do not talk so. How could I bear to let you go alone? You who have no one in the whole world but me, she answered in a low, tremulous tone her eyes still upon the water. Then suddenly turning toward him, her face flushed with enthusiasm, her eyes shining through tears, she said, But it is not you that ask it of me, Frank. No, not you, but one who has every right. For has he not redeemed me with his own precious blood? Is he not my creator, preserver, and bountiful benefactor? And have I not given myself to him, soul and body, in an everlasting covenant? And shall I keep back any part of the price? Oh, no, no! Let me but make sure that it is his voice I hear saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. And I am ready to leave all and follow him, though it be to the ends of the earth. My darling, he said with emotion, tightening his clasp of the hand he held, you have the right spirit. You view this matter in the right light. Yes, we are his, both of us. And may our only question of duty ever be, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? But if we see it our duty to go, the sacrifice I make will be as nothing to yours, my sweet girl. Yet it will not be small, Frank. To leave forever one's dear native land is no slight thing especially when it is to live among heathen people, low, cruel, degraded idolaters. That is true, and yet, oh, is there not joy in the thought of telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love to those who have never heard it, and who, if we do not carry it to them, may never hear it? Yes, yes, indeed. And in the thought that we are literally obeying his command, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And how very slight will be our suffering and self-denial compared to his. But, Frank, how shall we determine this question? 
how know whether we are truly called to this great work? Ah, it does not seem possible that I should ever be deemed worthy of such honor. We will continue to make it a subject of constant earnest prayer, he said, asking to be guided to a right decision. Also, we will open our hearts to your parents and consult them. If they refuse consent to your going, we will see in that an indication that the Lord's will is not that we should go. Laborers are needed here also, and it may be that he will appoint us our work in this part of his vineyard. Yes, she said, I could never feel it right to go if father and mother should oppose it. Yet I am sure they will not. If they see reason to believe we are called by the master, for ever since I can remember, their most ardent wish for their children has been that they might be entirely devoted to his service. At that moment, the honored parents of whom she spoke, sitting side by side in the vine-covered porch of their home, resting after the labors of the day, were talking of their children and rejoicing in the well-founded belief that most, if not all, of them had already given themselves to the blessed service. They spoke of Mildred and Annis, the eldest and youngest, now on their way home after their winter at the Oaks, of Rupert, their oldest son, a prosperous and highly respected man of business, Cyril, absent at college, Zillah with her husband and babe living just across the street, of Ada and her betrothed, and lastly, of the only two just then in sight, Don and Fan, down in the garden, seated on a bench under a spreading tree, the lad whittling, his sister watching him with hands lying idly in her lap. There was languor in the droop of her slender figure. The eyes that rested now upon Don's face, now on his work, were unnaturally large and bright. And though a rich color glowed in her cheeks, her features were thin and sharp. Stuart, said Mrs. Keith, in low, slightly tremulous tones, gazing fixedly at Fan as she spoke. I am growing uneasy about that child. She is not well. She scarcely complains, but is losing flesh and strength very fast of late. Only because she is growing so rapidly, I think, Marcia, he said. See what a brilliant color she has. Not the bloom of health, I fear, said the mother. I am very glad Dr. Landreth will be here soon. I hope he may be able to do something for her. I hope so indeed. Perhaps it is a change of climate and scene she needs. Probably it would have been better had she gone with the others last fall. I don't know. It is too late to think of it now. But if Charlie recommends a trip, we must manage to give it to her. Certainly. And in that case, you will have to go too, for I doubt if anything could induce Fan to leave her mother. No, what a dear affectionate child she is, and how she and Don cling to each other. In the pause that followed that last remark, Fan's low, clear tones came distinctly to their ears. Ah, now I see what you are making, Don. A spoon, isn't it? Yes, it'll be very useful on the journey across the plains. Whose journey? Mine, he said, then sang happily, Oh, California, oh, that's the land for me. I'm bound for Sacramento with the washbowl on my knee. That's the tune of Oh, Susanna, she said as she ceased. But where did you get those words? Haven't you heard it before? he asked. 
They've been singing it all over town. The gold fever's raging, and a lot of fellows are talking of going off across the plains to the California diggings. If they do, I'd like to make one of the party. The parents, who were silently listening, exchanged glances of mingled surprise and concern, while Fan exclaimed, Oh, Don, you can't be in earnest. You'd better believe I am, laughed the lad. Why, it would be the greatest fun in the world, I think, to go and dig gold. Exceedingly hard work, my boy, Mr. Keith said, raising his voice that it might reach the lad. Don started and turned his head. He had not thought of anyone but Fan hearing his talk. But we wouldn't mind working very hard indeed for a little while to make a fortune, father, he answered in a lively tone, springing up and advancing to the steps of the porch. Fan followed and seated herself upon them. Ah, but who could ensure the making of the fortune? asked Mr. Keith gravely. Where one will succeed, Don, probably hundreds will fail and die of the great hardships to be encountered in the search for gold. The exhausting toil, scanty fare, and exposure to the inclemencies of the weather cannot fail to be a rough and toilsome life, full of danger and temptation, too, to the desperados and outlaws from all parts of the country, if not of the world, are always among the first to rush to such places. And even men who behaved respectively at home often throw off all restraint there and act like savages. Think, too, of the dangers to be encountered along the way, Don, said his mother. A trackless wilderness to cross, supplies of food and water perhaps giving out, to say nothing of perils from wild beasts and hostile Indians. Oh, mother, he said, if you'd ever been a boy, you'd know that danger has great attractions sometimes. But, oh, Don, exclaimed Fan, just think what mother and I and all of us would be suffering from anxiety on your account. Ah, but you'd feel paid for it all when you saw me come home with my pockets full of gold. Gold far too dearly bought. If you come back to us a rough, hardened man instead of the dear boy you are now, said his mother. I've no notion of ever becoming a rough, mother mine, returned the lad in a half-playful tone. And what is virtue worth that can't stand temptation? Not much, my son, said his father gravely. But what mockery to pray lead us not into temptation and then rush needlessly into it. But let the subject drop for I am quite resolved never to give my consent to so wild a project. The boy's face clouded, but accustomed to obedience, he ventured no reply. Here, Fan, I'll give this to you, he said, handing her the now-finished spoon. Thank you. It is very pretty, she returned, regarding it admiringly. Fan, dear, I think the dew is beginning to fall, said Mrs. Keith, rising. Come in. Come in, both of you. We will adjourn to the sitting room. They did so, and were there presently joined by Frank and Ada, who came in hand in hand, their faces full of a strange mixture of joy and sorrow. Mrs. Keith sat in a low rocking chair, softly passing her hand over Fan's hair and cheek, the young girl having seated herself on a stool at her mother's side and laid her head in her lap. They, as well as Mr. Keith and Don, seemed to be silently musing as the other two entered. But all four looked up at the sound of their footsteps, and Mrs. Keith, noticing the unusual expression on their countenances, asked a little anxiously, 
What is it, Ada, my child? Ada opened her lips to reply, but no sound came from them. Hastily withdrawing her hand from Frank's, she sprang forward and knelt beside her sister. Mother, oh, mother, how can I ever leave you? She exclaimed, tears coursing down her cheeks. Mrs. Keith was much surprised, knowing of no adequate cause for such emotion, especially in one usually so calm and undemonstrative as Ada. Dear child, she said, caressing her, we will hope never to be too far apart for frequent talks. Frank's present charge is but a few miles distant. But mother, he thinks he is called to foreign missions, Ada returned in trembling tones. Can you let me go? Can you give me to that work? The query, so sudden, so unexpected, sent a keen pang to the tender mother's heart. With a silent caress, she drew her beloved child closer, and they mingled their tears together. What? What is this I hear, Frank? asked Mr. Keith huskily, starting up and drawing nearer the little group, for Frank had followed Ada and stood looking down upon her, his features working with emotion. With an effort, he controlled it, and in a few words gave the desired information. He had for some time felt an increasing interest in the foreign work and in the desire to give himself to it should it be made plain that he was called of God to that part of the field. Oh, no, no, cried Fan, putting her arms around her sister's neck. We can't spare you. Why mayn't Frank work for the master here as well as there? Laborers are needed in both places. Very true, said Frank and I trust our earnest desire is to be guided to that part of the vineyard where the master would have us. It shall be my prayer that you may, said the mother with emotion, drawing Ada's head to a resting place on her breast as she spoke. And dearly, dearly as I love my child, hard as it will be to part with her, I cannot hesitate for a moment if the master calls her to go. No, nor can I, Mr. Keith said, sighing and bending down to stroke Ada's hair in tender fatherly fashion. End of chapter 4th